Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America, Capital Region, and Bracebridge Hall have helped thousands of patients in the D.C., Maryland area start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at RCA see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Hi, I'm John Bearer, the host and lead researcher for Stories of Sacrifice, American POW-MIA podcast, and the U.S. POW-MIA family locating. A free forensic genealogy public service I provide to support POWMIA families trying to get their loved one identified and brought home. First, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your interest in the Stories of Sacrifice podcast. Our goal with the podcast is to tell the world about the sacrifice these brave heroes gave for the freedoms we enjoy every day. They gave our country their last full measure. They give us their tomorrow for our freedom today. Second, we would like to raise public awareness the thousands of these heroes from World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War have still not yet been found or returned to the United States, with many still buried as unknowns in our own national cemeteries. Their families still waiting for our government to disinter and identify them. So what can you do to support this important mission? First, if you are a relative of a missing in action service member, you can visit the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency website for more information about providing a family reference DNA sample. If you want more information, you can also contact me at john at uspowmiafamilylocating.com. Even if you're not related to an MIA, you can contact your members of Congress to request they allocate enough funding to support the POW MIA mission and to change the DPAA policy to a DNA lead process and create additional public partnerships to disinter and process the remains for those that are buried as unknown. You can also help us in our mission by sharing these podcast stories with your friends, family, and consider sharing them on your own social media. We would also appreciate if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit www.storiesofsacrifice.org and leave us a review there. You can visit our affiliate links on our website where we will earn a small commission on your purchases at no extra cost to you. If you feel moved to do so, please visit our donation links on our website to help us continue this important mission. Just sharing these stories helps us greatly and we cannot thank you enough for listening. Sit back and relax and we hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome to Stories of Sacrifice, World War II American POW MIAs in the Philippines. This is a production of the U.S. POW MIA Family Locating. I'm your host and lead researcher, John Barrett. 
Buried as an unknown at the Manila American Cemetery, Private Martin Kunick served with Company H, 31st Infantry Regiment in the Philippines at the outbreak of World War II. Martin was captured by the Japanese when General Edward King surrendered the Bataan forces on April 9, 1942. Martin died at the notorious prisoner of war camp Cabatatuan in July of 1942. This is Martin's story of being an immigrant to the U.S., his ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms, and his family's long struggle to get Martin identified to be brought home for an honorable burial under a headstone with his own name. His nephew, Dr. Frank Kunick Jr., talks about the process and the roadblocks his family has faced in getting Martin identified. So my name is Dr. Frank Kunick Jr. Um, I am the uh, paternal nephew of Private Martin uh, Louis Kunick, who was born in a small town in Slovakia, uh, present-day Slovakia, Valkylavara. Um, Martin grew up in a very poor family, and with the end of World War I, and my grandfather having fought in the war, uh, my grandmother felt it necessary to take the family out of, out of the uh, interwar years of, of Europe. And so they made connections with friends that had come over from Europe and eventually landed in Erie, Pennsylvania. And that was in 1929. And Martin came across the Atlantic on the uh, Aquitania, which was a sister ship to the Mauritania and the Lusitania, which, of course, was sunk in World War One. And so coming to America, Martin was able to assimilate into American culture fairly well, uh, although he didn't speak any English when he came to the United States. And so school was definitely a struggle for him. But what he did when he got here was that he integrated into the Slovak community of, of Erie and was able to pick up odd jobs and eventually was able to work for the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, because obviously this was during the, the years of the Depression. And so he felt that there was a need for him to give back to the country that accepted him. And so he ended up enlisting in the United States Army uh, following the tradition of all the men in our family, um, certainly his father in World War One, and ultimately uh, his his soon soon to come brothers um, that weren't born at the time he came to the United States, and so he so after his, his enlistment, he was initially in the uh, 12th Infantry Regiment, and that was fairly uneventful. Uh, at the time, circumstances in Europe were such that uh, there was no United States involvement. However, uh, it was pretty obvious that war eventually would come to the United States. And so he re-enlisted, and on his re-enlistment, he was uh, reassigned to the 31st Infantry Regiment and was ultimately stationed in the Philippines. And at that time, there wasn't too much going on in the Pacific uh, of course, the war uh, hadn't come to the United States yet uh, in the Pacific theater, but the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, uh, obviously changed that. And just prior to that, Martin actually was scheduled to be discharged and was preparing to come home. And in the letters that he had written to my grandmother, he had stated that 
he was looking forward to being home uh, back with her and, and back in the United States uh, sometime in the middle of January. Uh, so, of course, once Pearl Harbor was attacked, his discharge was canceled, and uh, he ultimately ended up in the Bataan Peninsula uh, on Luzon in the Philippines. Shortly thereafter, uh, the Battle of Bataan took place, and he wasn't able to be relieved. And, and the men that were fought in that battle, of course, were all undersupplied and had no ammunition and little food. Uh, all, all holding off the invasion of the Philippines by the the Japanese, but because of the spread of the war throughout the Pacific Theater, uh, all those men knew that that there was not going to be any relief, there was not going to be any resupply, and and they were not going to get out of there. He fought very bravely. He received fourteen different citations and medals, uh, including the Brown Star and the Purple Heart. The forces were ultimately ordered to surrender in April of uh, 1942. And Martin was stationed on the Bataan Peninsula. Uh, the, two, the forces were essentially concentrated in two main areas uh, in that area. There was a force that was on the Bataan Peninsula and a force that was on uh, Corregidor Island. And Martin was on the Bataan Peninsula. So the surrender of the forces came a little earlier. The forces on Corregidor Island were actually able to uh, hold out a little bit longer until uh, the middle to end of May. But ultimately, the forces were surrendered. The Japanese were completely unprepared for the numbers of American soldiers that ultimately were surrendered. And so the Japanese concentrated the soldiers in camps in the southern part of Bataan and organized them into groups and marched them north into the interior portion of the Philippines. Uh, and this became sub subsequently known as the Bataan Death March. And so ultimately, uh, Martin survived the Bataan Death March and ended up in a transition camp called Camp O'Donnell. And at that point in time, the Japanese created uh, prisoners of war camp. They actually took over uh, Cabanatuan camps, which were initially uh, Filipino training facilities. And there were three subdivisions of the camp initially, uh, with Camp 1 the largest. And Martin ultimately ended up in Camp 1. Uh, the other two camps were in existence for a short period of time, and then they uh, were all consolidated into Camp 1. Uh, the men that were initially in the camp were all the survivors of the Bataan Death March, and so they were particularly sick, malnourished, and of course the Japanese didn't treat them with any degree of kindness, and their starvation and their malnutrition, their uh, overall health uh, was very poor. Finally, uh, Martin succumbed to diphtheria on July 23rd, uh, 1942, at approximately 3.30 in the afternoon. Going back with, uh, you know, when, when you were talking about how your, your family immigrated to the United States and Martin sure. had, had first joined, uh, what, what, what was the, the, the regiment he first joined? He was initially in the 12th uh, Infantry Regiment. Yeah, and I think it, I think it was that, at that time that he actually applied for his naturalization and 
and uh, was yep. actually become a naturalized U.S. citizen. That's right, and I actually I don't have the date in front of me, but I know in one of the files uh, that you sent me, uh, you have the exact date of when he became naturalized. Yeah. I, uh, so I, that's actually a really good point to... Yeah, I, I'm just thinking back to what it would have been like for Martin, um, you know, barely being able to probably very, you know, speaking very broken, broken English, <laughs> joining the U.S. military, but ultimately to, to, to receive his, his uh, naturalization or his, his citizenship and continuing on with his military career, you know, and going into the 31st Infantry. Well, by the time, I think he became naturalized in 19, I think it was 1938, November 1938, if I remember correctly, uh, somewhere around in there. Uh, you had a copy of his his certificate. But by that time, having come from, he came in 1929, and so he was naturalized in 1938. So by that time, he at least had nine years of nine years of practice to to learn the English language. However, my father said that they didn't use English at home at all, and so uh, you're right. He would have had uh, unlikely would have spoken broken English. Well, although well, plus two, he had, they went into a Slovak community in Erie as well, and so yeah, I would imagine that his actual English speaking would have would have been. Um, it would have been a problem. Yeah, I was just I was just thinking back, you know, thinking back to what it would have been like for him, you know, coming to a, a new a new world and you know and joining the military and you know doing his part. What was what was the the, the reasons why the family immigrated exactly? Was it was it because of the, the stuff that was going on in Germany, you know, prior to their immigration, you know, with Hitler and and the Third Reich and and things like that, or was it more just because of the World War One? You know, your great great grandfather fighting in World War One, and 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 thinking about that was uh, was was your grand great great grandfather fighting on the side of Germany, or what? Which war are you you referring to? Sure. So my grandfather fought. Uh, he was actually conscripted into the Austro-German uh, Army of World War One, and he the stories in our family he really had a very bad time with things. Um, he was, uh, he was gassed. Uh, he under, underwent a chlorine, um, and mustard gas attack. And apparently what happened was according to my grandmother, when he came back from the war, he just was not the same person and was, was very angry and, and mean. And so initially my grandmother, uh, brought, the family over from uh, from Europe to Erie, where they had friends. She w eventually went back to Europe and brought him over when it became apparent that that war was coming to Europe. Uh, and one of her fears was that he would end up being conscripted again into the German army. Um, both times, or, sorry when he was conscripted into world war one, uh, it was very much against his will. He had no choice. Uh, and so her fear was that he would end up getting conscripted again to go into fight for the Germans. And if not be outright killed, uh, then, then he could be damaged even more. Uh, and at the time though, the racial policies of Nazi Germany 
hadn't been strictly enforced all across of Europe. And of course, being of Slavic descent, uh, the the Slavic people as a whole, not necessarily Slovaks, although they were a part of that, um, but also Russians and Poles, uh, they were all considered to be racially inferior uh, by the Germans. And so uh, he may have started out in the army, uh, but his long-term his long term prognosis with fighting for the Germans had that happened, of course, would have unlikely or would have very likely not ended up very well. So she was able to bring him over before the outbreak of uh, World War II. I don't know when exactly he came, but it was in sometime in the early to mid. It was before the Anschluss and before the uh, seizing of Czechoslovakia by Hitler. Uh, and I don't remember exactly when when those dates were, but I believe it was sometime in, in the early 30s to mid-1930s. And so Martin, when he immigrated at, in 1929, at that time he was only 15. And so uh, too young to, to have remembered all of the, the details of, or any of the details of World War I. Um, but certainly had they stayed, he, he would have been old enough that, that he could have either been pressed into service in some capacity by someone. Uh, but again, with, with the racial policies of, of uh, Nazi Germany, it, the family could, could have certainly endured uh, some, some really horrible things. But thankfully, none of that happened. Exactly, exactly. But it's just, you know, having to run from something like that, you know, that knowing what, what's going to come. And luckily they were able to escape that part of it. And it's interesting to talk to uh, individuals from around that, that time frame, And the, the perception that Americans seem to have was that uh, all of these things were happening. They, they were happening incrementally in Europe, but that they were each and of themselves a surprise and a shock. But you talk to the Europeans that lived through that time, and they all knew what was coming. If you look at the the history of how Hitler went about these things, he didn't negotiate with Czechoslovakia. He negotiated with Britain. And uh, at the Munich, I think it was the Munich, when the Munich Accords were signed, uh, which I believe allocated Czechoslovakia to uh, Nazi Germany's control, uh, Czechoslovakians weren't even weren't even invited to, to discuss the matter. And so if you hear the Europeans talk about this time and in, in, in history, uh, they all knew what was coming. And, and they may not have known the degree of the horrors that would eventually be unleashed, but anyone outside of uh, Germany who really paid attention to the political situation uh, were well aware that, that Nazi Germany was, was a was really going to be a, a real significant problem for, for Europeans to come. And, and when they, you know, when they immigrated here, you, you were saying that they went to, to Pennsylvania because of the Slavic community that was there. What, what were these Slavic communities like? Well, personally, I don't know. Uh, the, when my family came to the country, of course, they went through Ellis Island, and my grandmother took the family to Erie, uh, for two reasons. The primary reason was that 
friends of theirs from Europe, from that area where they came from in, in what's now Slovakia, uh, they, they had friends there. They had contacts there. And actually a very good family friend, uh, my father uh, in Slovak, uh, uncle is, is Tritz. And so this, this gentleman was a very close friend of the family, and my father grew up calling him Streets. Uh, and he was in Erie. And so there was a draw there because, number one, there was a Slovak community where there were a high number of Slovak speakers. But also, in addition to that, people that my grandmother knew and that the family knew. And so that transition uh, was a little less uh, harsh for them being able to be amongst people that spoke the common language uh, that they spoke and uh, to help them with their transition uh, in, into America. We'll go ahead and move on here to, uh, you know, you had talked about the Bataan Death March uh, and, and then, of course, you know, the, the Battle of Bataan, uh, where, the, where uh, the Filipino and American forces held off the Japanese for it was about three and a half, four months. I, I couldn't imagine going through what they went through knowing that you know they they had had the assumption that help would be coming you know through all i don't know if you've looked into the uh like the war plan orange uh three plans that 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 they had back then about how they would fall back to baton if if they were ever attacked and and how they could hold off for a few months until reinforcements arrived and so that's what all these men assumed help was going to be on the way but they didn't really i don't think they really realized how devastated the naval forces were you know when they were attacked on attacked at pearl harbor but there was always rumors and and things that uh that america's navy was on its way and soon they'd be relieved and and you know of course that never happened and i i just can't imagine how devastated they felt you know the day on the day that general king actually surrendered their forces i I know many of them wanted to continue on fighting and a lot of them you know actually didn't surrender they actually found their way or escaped and, and made their way over to Corregidor and or others became uh, guerrilla fighters but uh, that's right and unfortunately uh, one of in addition to to everything that you rightly uh, summarize uh, one of the most unfortunate things is that the documentation from the the people who actually were on the ground uh, unfortunately a lot of that has been lost to history of what the what the soldiers were actually seeing and feeling. We know from studying the battle maps where they were and and what forces were where and and the general timeline. But as far as the actual detailed history, uh, so many of them were lost and and with them lost their history. For us, the only glimpse that we have of Martin, uh, other than the few letters in the family that have survived. And those letters came before he actually went to to battle. Yeah, uh, was A.B. Abraham's book, and you know, the, to to have his name mentioned the few times that that are mentioned in there, um, even in just a few sentences, uh, to be able to, you know, for someone like me who obviously it, it was many decades after Martin died before I was born. Sometimes it's you fall into the trap of forgetting that every single one of these names was a living, breathing, real person who had dreams and fears and hopes, um, who was scared, who suffered, uh, who fought and fought 
fought for their lives, fought for their country, fought for their friends. And, and I think that that's one of the, one of the, the hardest things for us is all of that is, is lost to us. We, we don't know what he felt, but I agree. It's, it's, it's humbling to sit in my warm house surrounded by my family with all of the things that I enjoy to try to think about what these men went through, uh, sitting in the jungle alone, not knowing what's coming, fighting a, a, a vicious enemy. It, it just, it's, and to be half starved with no medications and not be able to be treated with, with no word coming from the outside and just the general idea of not knowing. And then, then to be surrendered without any input in that, uh, it must've, it must've been very disheartening. I, I, I agree. I, I can't imagine what, what it must've been for any of these men to sit there and, and have to go through that. And obviously most certainly, um, our own relative. Yeah. It's hard to think. You know, and, and and you talked about how how Martin died in, in Camp Catatuan. I can never say the name. Cabanatuan. Yeah, it took me a long time to learn it. <laughs> I always get told. You know, when you order a new video game or a golf club or a blender, and then it arrives at your door, you get a little thrill. Imagine how much more thrilling it is when you order a new car with Nissan at home. You can shop for the perfect ride and order it without ever having to go anywhere. Sure beats a golf club or a blender. Buy a new car entirely online with Nissan at Home. Deliver direct from dealer to driveway. Thrill starts here. Services may vary at participating dealers subject to applicable law. See dealer for details. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Died with it. Um, you know, you talked about how he passed away. Uh, what, what was the cause of his death? So Martin ended up dying of diphtheria. There's a few things uh, with diphtheria. First of all, it's very treatable. Uh, with with penicillin or or suitable antibiotics, and and basically decent nutrition uh, and rest, it's a it's a very survivable illness. And now, of course, in in modern America, uh, it's a required inoculation for for students to have. Uh, so so this was a truly treatable condition. But to have it untreated has got to be a unimaginable death. What happens, you know, what, what's, what, what, what kind of, the, what, what happens to the body, you know, that when it goes on it untreated? Sure. So diphtheria attacks, one of the main areas that it attacks uh, is in the oral cavity. And it causes the tonsils to swell. It causes the throat to swell there's toxins from the bacteria actually create a high amount of uh, basically pus, what we call exudate in the neck. And so uh, he would have felt like he was choking continuously. Uh, He would have gasped for air. Uh, And of course, being the malnutrition and 
the starvation and and almost certainly dehydration all would have compounded it but they also uh the diphtheria also would have made those things worse because uh swallowing becomes a problem eating becomes a problem and so uh one it becomes a, a a vicious circle where one makes the other worse so without question uh he died a very painful a very very painful death there there's no doubt about that entirely preventable and it sounds a lot worse than you know what main the main cause of death you know going through those camps is actually malaria and dysentery right and and those are horrible in their own way <laughs> yeah but very uh, so easily easily treatable with the right medication exactly and the biggest the the worst thing about the diphtheria is uh in addition to the high fevers and and, and everything else is just that feeling of choking and that feeling of of gagging and not being able to catch your breath and you, to put myself in those positions when I'm in a safe environment and I endure those things the the fear that that induces but but to be in that circumstance and to have that go on 24 hours a day 7 days a week uh camp records show that he entered the hospital uh around July 1st uh and died on July 23rd so that means that he laid there and suffered like that for 3 weeks yeah. Or nearly three weeks. He was probably suffering long before that, too. And certainly, and that's coming on the heels of having survived the the death march. The day that he passed, you know, they they uh, you know, there was two different scenarios that they had back then, just depending on the time time, you know, which month that the person died. But uh, um, at that time, there was a twenty four hour burial window. What what happened with uh, Martin when he when he died? So when he died, the window that you're speaking about, the 24-hour burial window, was from noon to noon. And so camp records state that he died at 3.30 in the afternoon. And so typically what would have happened is that soldiers that died the day before uh, were stored in a temporary morgue, and they were placed into a temporary morgue. And the next day, the... Uh, burial detail would have taken them and buried them in graves that were dug the previous day. For that day, that burial detail would dig the graves that would be used in the following 24-hour period. And as the camp went on, that that 24-hour window from noon to noon changed. Uh, it went, uh, I believe, to seven to seven, and then ultimately midnight to midnight. But the the process was still the same. But in Martin's case, dying so early in the camp's existence, the Japanese didn't allow for the graves to be marked. And so it also it was disorganized in burial itself as well. And oftentimes multiple graves were uh, in use at the same time. As the camp went on, this became much more organized and the Japanese allowed actually for records and and uh, documentation of deaths and when they occurred and, and, uh, and also to have the camp cemetery, uh, organized. But, but in those first few months, essentially what was happening was that holes were dug into the ground, uh, and the bodies were, uh, haphazardly thrown into them and then buried. And so the existing records for the first several months of the camp are not specifically detailed, and that creates a lot of confusion down the road. 
Now, there were some individuals in the camp who, as the camp went on and became more organized, uh, different individuals took the task of uh, the equivalent of graves registration. And so the individuals that took on this task went back and interviewed as many of the inmates at the camp as possible to try to create as detailed of a history and a detailed record as possible. In addition, um, there were some reports that some of the inmates were keeping records, uh, but all of this had to be done, of course, uh, without the Japanese uh, being aware of it. Uh, there's some uncertainty with the first several months after the camp um, was in its existence of who exactly was buried where. And of course, all of this becomes relevant in the post-war years uh, when the camp cemetery is disinterred and uh, identifications are are attempted to be made. Yeah, you know, the, one of the one of the gra graves registration officers that took over later on was Captain Khan. Yes, what caused some of the lot of the confusion? You know, Captain Khan did an excellent job uh, actually going back to the original records of the hospital and and finding the date and time that uh, you know because the hospital kept good records on the on the day and the time that the the service member passed away. Um, but he had to go back and reconstruct a lot, like you were talking about, reconstruct a lot of that effort. Absolutely. And and for him to be able to do that under the most extraordinary of circumstances, uh, I think we can all, <laughs> we all owe him a, a huge debt of gratitude um, for the work that he was able to accomplish. Uh, because the especially in the early days of the camp, uh, there was so little documentation that was able to be compiled that what does exist and what was compiled uh, is is absolutely invaluable and in some cases the only record that that remains exactly yeah and they even actually had to bury the records and keep the records buried until liberation and that's when uh, I think it was A.B. Abrams went back and, and dug up a lot of those records is that correct or uh, I don't know the specifics of that but I know that had had any of the prisoners been found with any of the records, they almost certainly would have been executed. Yeah, yeah. I'm working with another family whose whose uh, grandfather actually showed up to a uh, Camp O'Donnell right after the death march, and he was executed on the spot because he had Japanese currency in his pocket. They did not any excuse, uh, and even without excuse, they, without reason, uh, they the Japanese viewed. Uh, all of these soldiers with contempt and they view them as subhuman um, first because they were the enemy but secondly because they were surrendered and and the individual soldiers position or belief didn't matter they were surrendered on behalf of the United States and so they were unworthy of life certainly there are anecdotal reports of some of the Japanese guards um, taking pity on on some of the soldiers uh, there's a a large amount of information about the the abject cruelty and brutality that was shown to to these men. Particularly, you read some of the documents from the Bataan Death March, talking about you know not being able to imagine what these men went through. I can't imagine being marched in the sun without water, with your comrades in arms, and watching them. Uh, be bayoneted or beheaded uh, for no infraction other than being too weak to walk. It boggles 
it's almost unimaginable what what they saw and had to endure uh, that any of them came out on the other end alive. You know, I there must be a point in time where the reality of what you're facing around you becomes such that a primal instinct kicks in and it's it's simply about survival at that point it's it's not about kindness it's not about love it's not about compassion it's about pure pure survival and a lot of the guys didn't survive general macarthur ended up coming back and you know liberated the philippines and um, of course a lot of this information had gotten out about the baton death march and and these the extreme cruelty that the our, our prisoners of war had to face, you know, in these in these death camps is what I like to call them. They were, they and, were, yeah. And and how the government actually covered it up for many years because, well, they covered it up during the war years. Uh, they didn't want the, the the general public to get you know this information to get out, and and actually, I guess, to keep it from hampering their their uh, their spirits of sorts. I guess you would say. Um, but then they finally, uh, a couple of these POWs that actually escaped a couple of the prison camps and they made their way, I don't know, to some islands and they ended up being liberated uh, early on and sent back to the United States. And, and But they were told to keep quiet about what they went through until I think it was 1943 or 40, early 44 is when they were finally able to talk about it and, and, and the America heard about it. And I, I just can't imagine what these POW families, you know, cause at this, by this time, most families knew that their, their son had become a POW of the Japanese, but they didn't know their fate. And then, uh, when General MacArthur finally come back and liberated, they actually had the graves registration units go out and document these sites and, and start the, the disinterment process and trying to identify these, these remains. And I'm not sure, I think it was in 46, I think is when they, they actually, started the disinterment process there at Camp Catapultuan. What what do you know about the process that, that they went through on this disinterment? Sure. So I can talk a little bit about that. But just to go back to something you just said, um, it's an interesting thing. There are books dedicated to the World War II propaganda and how even the military leaders, of course, knew what was happening, but how the government worked to uh, manipulate the information that was getting out into uh, into the public sphere. You know, of course, this is all before um, the advent of instant news. Uh, these things couldn't exist in, in, in today's day, day and age. Automatic transfer of information, you know, at the click of a button. Yeah, they were getting it off of newsreels when they went to the movie theaters or, or through the radio. You know? Exactly, exactly. My mom actually, uh, before she passed away, would talk about uh, when – she went to the the movies, you know, seeing all the war reels and uh, and of course the posters and the newspapers. The censorship was so high in the newspapers to make sure that that things were not done to undermine. Well, just look at the fact that there was, uh, you know, these gentlemen's agreements, if you will, uh, between the media and and the president of President Roosevelt, and with him being in a wheelchair, that that yeah. the media wouldn't wouldn't want that to be published uh, because it may be seen as a, a sign of weakness. And so it's just interesting, uh, the propaganda 
that was in place by by the government. And then the other thing you were talking about, uh, the information that was actually coming out, uh, at the end of the final chapter, if you will, in, in Cabanatuan's history, of course, is the, the famous raid that took place in, in January of 1945. But the reason, part of the reason why that raid even took place was because of word getting out from uh, these other camps. Uh, for example, the, the Palawan uh, massacre, uh, where the Japanese drove all of the prisoners into air raid shelters and then doused them uh, with gasoline and burnt them alive, and then, of course, shot and bayoneted anyone that tried to get out. And uh, I don't recall the exact number of men that died in that, but it was it was certainly well over 100, these horrible and horrific deaths. And so word began trickling out, getting back into the the military leaders' information, and because of these other atrocities that were taking place, uh, the decision was ultimately made um, that military action to actually rescue the surviving POWs at the camp needed to take place, and that was the the nidus of the creation of the, the famous Cabanatuan raid. Uh, to get back to your question. Yeah, how they were the disinterment process. The disinterment. So in the post-war years, when the final years of the camp, the camp cemetery uh, was in a very different state than it was initially and, and particularly during the time when, when Martin had passed away. And so so in the post-war years, the United States Army sent representatives over um, to begin the disinterment process and collecting the information, uh, all with the hope of being able to make as many identifications um, as possible. And so the disinterment process ultimately became a very complicated process, but Initially, uh, the first identification took place at graveside. The soldiers who were buried, the identification was partly dependent upon the origin of uh, the prisoners. The prisoners that came from the Bataan Peninsula were typically stripped of all of their possessions, including their identification. The prisoners that originated from Corregidor after Corregidor finally fell Many of them were allowed to actually keep at least some of their personal uh, effects uh, and their identification. And so at the camp, when a prisoner would die, uh, if they had identification, um, dog tags or, or, or some other type of uh, possession that could identify who they were, uh, typically it was put into their mouths when, when they were buried. For the soldiers that had no identification, uh, most of the time, they used what material they had available, uh, writing their names on paper or or, or bark or, or something that... Um, but, of course, these were all organic, and, and they rotted away. And so when the bodies were first uh, disinterred, uh, automatically you have a certain subset that are able to be identified immediately, whether or not they had their identification present on their body. Uh, but then you had a whole other group that that unfortunately had no identification. And so one of the mistakes that was made at that time was given the, the scale of the number of deaths, uh, there's just shy of 3,000 men that died uh, at the camp. And so you're dealing with a very large number of sets of remains. And unfortunately, one of the decisions that 
the army made at that time was to recruit individuals who had funerary experience but didn't necessarily have uh, anthropologic or archaeology experience. As the remains were removed from the ground, uh, the graves that were in use in the early part of the uh, existence of the camp were essentially they were thrown into the grave. And so the bodies were intertwined. Of course, um, the soil conditions being such that most of the organic material had already decomposed at that point. So it's really a recovery of bones. But the initial evaluation took place at graveside and uh, the individuals not being properly trained in the techniques, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the bony remains got mixed up. Uh, and then complicating the matter was this complicated system of evaluation. And the remains were transferred to up to three different facilities, each time receiving a different number, being evaluated utilizing different individuals using different paperwork. And so at each each of these locations, you have untrained individuals using paperwork that doesn't match any other facility, and you're evaluating remains that were already in bad condition when they came out of the, the ground and continued to get worse at each place that they were evaluated at. And sometimes, so... Sometimes sorry. already mixed up before they even got to them, the remains. Absolutely. And also, too... The bones may have been damaged. Uh, a dropped skull is certainly going to create a lot of problems. Uh, and so the evaluations at each place, even though they may be looking at exactly the same uh, sets of remains, having the paperwork be different and having different individuals that aren't properly trained in the technique with bones that are already not related into the individual, but rather associated with uh, having been buried in the same common grave, it created a lot of problems. And so the the process was that these best attempts were made, and what was not to be reassociated by their determination, uh, the leftovers, if you will, uh, were again categorized in an entirely different manner and and were completely disassociated with with the bony remains. And so, unfortunately, that process, well, so then each set of remains was ultimately uh, given a final disposition. Most of them were buried uh, in the Manila American Cemetery. The ones that were identified usually were returned to their families. But most of the ones who weren't identified are buried in Manila American Cemetery under un an unknown, a grave that is marked an unknown is an individual. Now, the problem with that process is uh, even though the sets of remains indicate that it's the remains of one individual, because of the way that the bones were disinterred and the evaluation process, unfortunately, most of the bones are mixed up with different individuals. And obviously, when you think about this, of the, the uh, more than 1,000 that remain unidentified, uh, having all of these bones mixed, as well as the remains that were returned to families. Families may have buried a relative that wasn't really the relative or may have unintentionally have uh, portions of other individuals, bones of other individuals that have been mixed in with, with their their relatives. And so 
it, it's really created a, a lot of problems and really has made the identification of the unknown individuals uh, very problematic, which of course brings us to to where we stand today. Yeah, and you know they they did you know try to go back and look at some of that in the 1950s with the Cabatatuan project, uh, but ultimately um, you know it was determined that. I think they contacted one of the officers that kind of took over the grave registration and he told them that they couldn't depend on, you know, even even the ones that were that they thought they had identified correctly through uh, identification, like their dog tags might have been uh, buried with them or, you know, shoved into their mouth when they were buried. It was he, he, he let the War Department know that that's probably not the case, that that probably wasn't that individual service member, because a lot of them that did have identification when they knew that they were dying, uh, they gave it to their buddy, you know, their dog tag or, or whatever, or their wallet and said, uh, make sure when you make it home, give this to my family. Right. And so when that person was buried, ended up dying and was buried, you know, that, that identification followed that person who wasn't actually who was, who had died. Um, so the, the officer told, told the war department, you can't rely on that. And so they ultimately closed the the Cabatatuan project, and they sent sent uh, telegrams home home to the fam to the families of those that weren't identified, and told them, unfortunately, there's no word received on where your loved one was buried. He died in this camp, but there's no word on where his burial was, and so therefore we can't find him. And and therefore, if we do hear something or something comes up in the future where we can reopen the case, we will. But what the families really didn't know was that uh, they actually knew where where the, the POW was buried and they had the process in place that actually followed a lot of the remains like you were talking about and that they, they were ultimately buried in an individual grave and the Manila American Cemetery is an unknown. But the family didn't know that. The family thought they were just lost to time out there in some camp cemetery that, that could never be found. Right, and, and actually I can... I can tell you that that's exactly the impression that we had from from uh, within our own family and how we discovered we discovered everything. The telegram. My grandmother had received notification that Martin was missing, uh, so she knew that he that he was was uh, missing and likely had been taken prisoner of war. The final notification, I believe that she received was in the early parts of the 1950s and of course now we know being able to to look at all of the files when the government realized through their research that they had basically botched this job of identification of of these these soldiers um as you say they went back and and initiated this this project to try to straighten all of this out. In reviewing the Cabanatuan project, it's actually very interesting that they based those decisions on who they believed was buried in each grave or who was most likely associated with each grave. They say that home is where the heart is. Maybe that's why so many fall in love with Big Pine Key and Florida's Lower Keys. With epic ocean views, unspoiled wilderness, sandy beaches, abundant wildlife, RV resorts, and Stock Island's rustic charm. Florida's Lower Keys 
Don't skip a beat. For more about the lower keys and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash lower keys. I haven't really woken up until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Based on the documentation that they had from the inmates um, or the records that, that ended up surviving. And so exactly as you say, uh, at the close of that project, uh, recognizing that that the tasks at hand of being able to provide definitive uh, diagnoses at that time uh, were very limited because obviously this is all long before the advent of DNA technology and, and being able to utilize DNA for both reassociation and ultimate identification. And so my grandmother finally received uh, notification that, uh, that his remains were uh, unrecoverable and that, uh, as you said, if, if more information became available, they would reopen the cases, but that, that it was basically case closed. And that's what our family had believed for the longest time. And it wasn't until my father started digging in, he actually went to uh, Punchbowl Crater in Hawaii uh, in the 1980s and suddenly became aware that there was a memorial on which Martin's name was inscribed in the Philippines. He wrote to the government, and at that time, the government didn't give him hardly any information at all. Uh, they sent him a picture, and they sent him some duplicate medals, um, which were not his official issue, but that was it. And so it wasn't until I began a genealogy project to try to find information about my grandfather um, Having fought in World War One, we thought it would be interesting to find out if there was any information about where he fought or what battles he was in or any of that information. In doing so, we suddenly realized that perhaps we could do the same type of research to find out something about Martin. We knew when he died. We knew what he died from. We knew the unit he was in. But that was essentially it. And so not knowing what to do, initially we reached out to our state senator, Senator uh, Schumer, and I sent a letter of inquiry just saying, this is the situation, this is what we know, are you able to help us? And that kicked open the door for us, and, and we suddenly got all of this other information that we never knew, and we were actually able to start seeing his records, and through reviewing of those records, we found out that he's associated with a specific grave at the camp, and that those remains were ultimately, after a process of, of evaluation, were ultimately buried in single graves marked as an unknown in Minola Cemetery. So we had no idea that any of this was happening. None of this was provided to us from the government. It was only by us digging around that, uh, that we got this information that was ultimately given to us. What's crazy is, is how these families died, you know, basically, you know, you're your grandmother and going to her grave, not knowing that, you know, where Martin was. That's right. And, and Martin was her special baby boy. She, <laughs> you read the letters that Martin wrote to her. It's very, very clear that they had 
a very, very close and special bond. And my father, when he talks about his brother and, uh, and his mother, uh, he said that she was never the same. And I would imagine um, that I can understand how that would be the case. But she just never, never recovered from, from losing him. So for her to end up losing him and then dying without knowing uh, anything about him, it, it's just, it's heartbreaking. But interestingly enough, she did one thing that probably is the greatest single thing to assist in identifying Martin. And she inadvertently saved some of his DNA, some of Martin's DNA. The final two letters that Martin wrote to her um, before Pearl Harbor, when she received them from him, he wrote them from the Philippines, she cut the envelopes on the side. She didn't open them by the flaps. And she cut them on the side and she dumped the letter out. Uh, of course, reading the letters, we, we know what was happening in Martin's life at that time. But she saved those envelopes. And so contained in the glue in those envelopes is, is Martin's DNA. And so we are fortunate, our family is fortunate enough to actually have source DNA from Martin himself uh, that's preserved in the glue. And that existed only because of chance that she happened to open these envelopes uh, by clipping the ends and, and taking the letters out that way. So in one way to look at it, her actions, even though she died without knowing what happened to him, her actions ultimately will be part of what finally identifies him uh, when we get to the point where we're ultimately successful to have remains that we believe are, are his uh, to be tested and, and verified by DNA. So in that process of, the, of, of DNA, I know after you got contacted Schumer's office, uh, did they uh, put you in touch with a, a caseworker or what, what, what exactly was the process that you had to go through to, uh, to give family reference samples of DNA to, to the government for his identification? So when I wrote to his office, I was actually very shocked. They, they wrote back immediately. It was within a few weeks. And they told me that that they would be forwarding my – I had a series of questions um, that I had asked about the details of, of his time in the Army and, and the circumstances surrounding his loss. And so they explained to me that they would forward this over to uh, – first to the uh, casualty office, the uh, past conflicts uh what is it? Past conflicts. Yeah, the branch, the branch of the army that actually deals with the casualties. Correct, and More. they would put put me in touch with a, a caseworker who would facilitate uh, all of the information and and facilitate the the any process that that would move forward. So I got information from that, and when that caseworker got in touch with me, uh, she took a lot of information that we had uh, the little bit that we had and she told us that she would make arrangements to have Martin's uh, medals officially reissued. Um, and my father being the only surviving next of kin, of course uh, he was entitled to, to have those, those medals and awards. In addition, she put us in touch with 
the uh, DPAA, the Defense uh, POW um, Missing in Action Account Accounting Agency, and their agencies there that process the DNA uh, provided a kit to us so that um, both my father and I could submit our DNA uh, ultimately for testing so that if at any point in time in the future re recovery is made of, of remains that we believe or that they believe to be Martin, um, they can be verified also confirmed um, with DNA from, from us as well. Yeah. And, and the process that you go through, you kind of think, you know, we were talking about this on the phone earlier, the process you, you kind of think is going to happen is, Oh, you know, they, they know exactly where fairly exactly where Martin's buried. And, and so you submit your DNA and, and voila, one, two years later, Martin's going to come home. Right. Identified and come home. But that, that really isn't the case, is it? Unfortunately it isn't. And, and that had been, of course, our understanding was that he was missing um, and that he was non-recoverable, which to us, we interpreted that he had died somewhere, had been buried in an unmarked grave that had been lost to time or lost to circumstance or, or something else, but that there was nothing to recover and he was never found. And what we suddenly found out was not only was that not the case, we know exactly where his remains are. Now, we don't know the exact grave that he's in, but we know the graves that are associated with the day and time surrounding when he died on July 23rd. And, and so even though we don't know the exact grave, we have a list of graves that will contain him. And so... We had absolutely no idea that there were any physical remains that, that were uh, available to, to be tested. And so, yes, our impression was, oh, great, we submit our DNA. They're going to run it against profiles. They'll be able to disinter or exhume what remains they have on file, and, and we have him returned. Once we found out that, that not only were there physical remains, but that we know where those physical remains actually reside uh, actually reside at this moment we thought it would be just a simple matter of of uh, formality of doing the the dna analysis and some paperwork and you know and lo and behold here we get to to bury my father's uh, my father's older brother there could have been nothing further from the truth how, how did your how did your father feel about you know when he when he learned that that uh you know, Martin was within reach, so to speak. Well, initially he was really very excited because, uh, again, he saw the effects of losing Martin, what that did to, to his mother. Um, of course, as well to him, I mean, he lost his older brother. He was eight the last time that he saw him and he'll be 89 this year. And so it really brought up a lot of old, uh, feelings from his childhood, thinking about his older brother that he had lost, that he had assumed and accepted a long time ago, uh, was missing and would never be found. And suddenly when this glimmer of light shone on the situation, where it appeared not only would it be possible, but that we thought it would be likely that we could have him identified and brought home, uh, he was overjoyed. 
and then unfortunately, when the realities of the situation uh, came into focus, uh, that in fact, this is not going to be an easy process. And then to find out not only is it not going to be easy, there's presently almost nothing being done to identify any of these men. Uh, it was very heartbreaking for him. It was in some ways almost having to relive losing Martin again. And I feel, I feel bad for him for that. So, so you guys received a, you know, of course a case record uh, from the army casualty office that, that basically said what, you know, this is the grave that Martin was in and, and, uh, and how many are associated, associated with that grave. But they also threw another one on top of you. They uh, decided to add three more graves to that. Uh, bringing the total to, uh, I think, a total including Martin, 101 POWs associated. Correct. Um, now, right. now, the process, now the process is having to sit back and wait for these other families uh, to kind of go through the same process that you have from the start where you... Spark innovation across your federal agency with IT hardware, software, and services from Connection Public Sector Solutions. Your technology procurement challenges will meet their match as Connection's dedicated account managers offer exceptional customer service and our extensive list of supported federal contracts means you'll always get a price that works for your budget. Learn more about innovation for your agency with Connection Public Sector Solutions at connection.com slash fedcontracts. Uh, get get uh, interested in some genealogy uh, of your family and and find out that oh you know your your MIA relative could be identified and uh, then go through that process but but a lot of families aren't looking at their at their genealogical record they're you know they a lot of them don't even realize that uh, this could be done um, so therefore you you guys are in limbo waiting uh, due to a you know, current policies that are on the books where they have to have 60% of family record samples for all the men associated with the grave. Uh, that includes those that even were identified back in the 40s and 50s. Right. So when we, when we finally began to understand exactly what the situation was uh, and to understand what the process that identification um, would entail. Uh, it became almost from sad to bad to worse. And initially, we looked at the Cabanatuan project uh, listed Martin to be cl most closely associated with one particular grave. And in that grave, uh, I believe there was something around 2022 uh, individuals, some of them uh, having been identified and, and returned, uh, the, remest, the rest remaining unidentified. And so when we looked at what the policy would be of disinterment, which you, which you alluded to, what DPAA's policy is for petitioning disinterment is that DNA profiles have to be on file from the families of the uh, men that are associated with that grave. And they have established this rule that they need to receive 60% of those samples uh, of the number of the grave. So, for example, if there are 10 men associated with the grave, they would require having to receive six 
uh, of those family reference samples. And the rationale for doing this is that, one, uh, there's something inherently disrespectful, I guess, about exhuming remains that, that have been laid to rest with honor. Uh, and then secondly, that they would be provided with a greater than 50% chance of identifying the individuals present in the grave. You, now, you, while I'm do sorry, you think, do you think that they were actually laid to rest with honor, though, being being buried under a cross that, that just says unknown? Well, no, I mean, they're they're being robbed of their name. And I think that that's inherently dishonorable. Uh, but what I mean is that they, they had been buried with full military honors and, and as soldiers, but they're missing the thing that's most closely associated with their being, and that's their name. And so their, their idea is that uh, these remains have been treated with respect. They were buried with military honors, that they are in a place of dignity, and that disturbing that process, even for the best of intentions to identify them, that there's something inherently disturbing that uh, belief. Now, I disagree with that, and many people disagree with that, but that's basically what was explained to us as to why, uh, even though our family reference sample or our DNA is on file, uh, that's not enough. And then not only is that not enough, you need to have this this arbitrary amount of 60% of the entire grave. But even that's not enough because in addition to having them on file, the DPAA also has to be convinced that that individual is actually present in that grave. So what that all boils down to is a greater than not likelihood that opening a particular grave will result in identification of an in, of 60% of the individuals in that particular uh, in that particular grave. Now, while that may sound logical to someone on the outside looking in, look at it this way. Using 10 sets of remains, what happens when you only have 5 samples instead of the required 6 of the 60% of the 10? So you can identify five men. Five men after 75 years can be identified and returned to their families, but but they are being prevented because you haven't met that 60% threshold. And that's problematic because as time goes on, you're actually less likely to obtain DNA from family members. Families, first of all, memories fade within the families. Individuals don't know that they had a missing great uncle. They don't know where to go look. Family history becomes less reliable. And all the while, these remains are sitting in the grave in a known location, uh, degrading. The DNA inside of them is becoming harder and harder to identify. Even though the technology to do so is becoming better, there is a threshold at which point DNA is just simply not usable anymore. And so while it may seem that the 60% rule makes sense, in fact, creating such an obstacle makes it less likely that these men can come home. Now, in our case, because Martin died early in the camp and the records uh, were not as reliable at that time, 
and the camp cemetery wasn't organized as well at that time. We have the added burden of not only is it the one grave that the Cabanaton project stated he's most likely associated with, but also the graves that were potentially in use around that time. So instead of just one grave with 20 individuals, now we have four graves with a grand total, as you said, of 100, 101 individuals. So now instead of only needing 13 reference samples, we now need 60. And as of May 2019, 39 have been received. So again, looking at their requirements, there are 39 men who could come home right now that could be identified right now and could have been within the last decade, uh, but were being prevented from moving forward because of the 60% rule. And as time goes on, you're less likely to get DNA out of the remains, at least statistically, and you're losing families. We've already, in searching for families that are associated with, with these, with these graves, uh, we're already unable to find some of them that we've that we've looked for that you've looked for yep. and and so uh if you take the fact that we have 40 percent if you were to take that 40 percent across uh the average of the 1000 that are missing there's 400 men that could come home right now that that are being prevented from from doing so and what's even worse than that is that the first grave wasn't opened until 2015 even though DNA technology has been around since the 1980s, these problems have been known. The Cabanatuan project was concluded in 1950. It was no secret that these bones and these remains were mixed. And the only thing that can solve the problem is going in and performing DNA testing on all of the remains. And I'm not suggesting that that's an easy process. It's not. Because 208 bones in the human body times 1,000 people um, you know, that's, it's a massive undertaking, but it's very solvable. And the fact that it's been only four years is, is, is frustrating. Wouldn't it make more sense? You know, you, you know, in, in, instead of the government requiring a 60% or even if they 50%, 40%, whatever the percentage is that, that they want, you know, if they have a good number of the families that have inquired about their, their POW relative, um, like in your case, the what was it, thirty nine? Uh, thirty nine as of May two thousand nineteen. Yeah. yeah, wouldn't it? You know, that means that, like you were saying, thirty nine men could come home today. Um, why wouldn't it uh, make sense to exhume the grave and these graves and uh, and do the DNA testing on all the remains uh, for this particular grave, and the the ones that do do not have family reference samples at least by exhuming the remains they would uh, be taking samples of the, or already have samples of the ones that that don't have family associated and have that already in the database so in the future when a family does inquire about it they can just do a, an in, a match up within a few weeks well in in from our perspective of course all of that makes sense and and we we do need to be realistic there are uh, a lot of missing soldiers uh, from many different conflicts. There is a set uh, amount of funding for DPAA that the government allocates, that Congress allocates. 
Um, there's a finite number of individuals. There's a finite number of, of machines um, and resources. And so no one, I'm not suggesting that this is a simple matter of opening up a whole bunch of different graves, sending them to the lab, the lab do their thing in a couple hours, throw the throw the results into a computer and poof the problem solved um, this is a very complicated problem uh, there's no doubt about it there were many mistakes that were made um, some through incompetence some that were entirely unintended unintended but the only guarantee that absolutely nothing is going to happen is to do absolutely nothing and right now only a handful of remains have come out of the ground for cabanatuan even though uh, there are hundreds of reference samples to compare them to, uh, you're not going to get all of them down the road. And right now, uh, the reasons that DPAA says that more can't be done is a combination of um, lack of resourcing, lack of funding. Um, there are already overwhelmed with all of the other work that they do, which is probably true. Uh, I have no reason to doubt that. And I have no reason to doubt uh, the patriotism of the people that work at these these institutions. Um, uh, I question some of the decisions that the higher-ups have made. Uh, I question maybe some of their um, motivations for some of the decisions that they made. Uh, but I want to be clear that, that uh, I don't point the finger at uh, the people that are doing a good job at these these agencies day in and day out, and they are doing good, and people are being identified and being returned. And so I don't want to hold a very narrow view of that the only thing that exists is is the remains of my relative in the context of, of the remains of, of Cabanatuan survivors. Um, it's not that simple. No, However... What I'm going into here... Each of us has a purpose. We are destined to do something meaningful, not only to support our loved ones, but to positively impact our communities throughout the country. What do you think a private Christian education looks like? Grand Canyon University graduates 25,000 students yearly and offers more than 225 high-quality programs across nine colleges. Find your purpose at GCU. Visit gcu.edu. Mail's here. It's two minutes later than yesterday. And because you know it's six minutes earlier than the day before, you decided it was time to get back to work. Let's job it up. At CareerBuilder, we're ready to help at every stage of your search. Build a resume, get industry tips and advice, and apply to multiple jobs in just one click. Get started now at CareerBuilder.com. If you look at the graveyard or at the at the Cabatatuan graveyard as a whole, I mean, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head how exactly how many common graves there were that were in use. But if you look at, at the entire cemetery as a whole, um, there's probably a good percentage of families that have inquired. And uh, that's a good percentage of, of those individuals that could be identified. Not just Absolutely. Individual graves. I'm talking about the entire cemetery alone, you know, because for each common grave, there may only be 
anywhere from at this at this present time anywhere between seven uh, percent or eight percent, ten percent, anywhere between there and fifty percent. Right, absolutely. Uh, and what it's going to take to solve this issue and to to specifically address the limitations of of what has happened um, is a dedicated effort to untangle um, at least this situation. And I'm sure that there are other situations in the world um, where mass graves have taken place, um, but it is going to take a dedicated and specific effort. What we're hoping for is that all of these remains can come out of the ground and that a lead process, a DNA lead process can be formulated in which uh, what that entails is that systematically every single set of remains are evaluated. Uh, there are different DNA studies that can be done to both reassociate and identify uh, the sets of remains. And so uh, putting all of that into a database, then you can compare to the DNA of families that are already on file. And then as more families come forward, you no longer need to worry about the reassociation of remains because that's been done. You no longer need to worry about further degradation of 75-year-old DNA because that's already been done. And then as families come forward and as identifications can be made, it's simple. It's a simple mat. Uh, it's a simple process of making a match between uh, a, a source and and a donor. And and again, I, this is a very complicated process. Uh, it's a very complicated problem. Uh, and there's a lot of we're leaving out obviously a lot of a lot of things that that come with this. Um, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things that a lot of different arguments that could be made, um, you know, as far as congressional action and then hiring new staff, it's, you have political appointees, you have career officials and you, you know, it's, it's, it's not an easy untanglement, but again, the situation isn't going to fix itself. And so the only way to fix it is to dedicate something to fixing it. And right now, you know, again, the first grave wasn't open until 2015 on DPAA's public facing site. Um, there's been less than 15 identifications in four years. And so you're talking about a thousand men who remain missing. Uh, we have no idea how many uh, family reference samples or DNA profiles they have on file. Um, but if their track record is, is 15 identifications in four years, and even that's not complete identifications, um, there's no hope of this being done in my lifetime or my children or grandchildren's lifetime. Uh, and again, as time goes on, as distance increases with source DNA from the remains and with family members, um, you're going to it's becoming less and less likely that any identification is going to be made. So time for action is now. And I'm not suggesting that's easy, but as time goes on, it's not going to get easier and it's not going to fix itself. And people like my father, who again, will be 89 this year, who lost his brother at age eight, who's been waiting all of this time. Uh, it's, it's just, I, it leaves me speechless for words. 
I don't understand how my father, as a veteran, as a family member, uh, who lost someone who gave their life for their country, uh, has to lay in the ground, granted, buried with honors and military honors and all of that, but who's being robbed of their names? Um, why that has to be the reality of the situation when the technology exists with a reallocation of, of funding, uh, with isolating this project and making it a priority. Um, you know, I think we owe it. We owe it to these guys. We owe it to these, these heroes um, who gave everything. And their ends were horrible. They're, they fought bravely under horrific conditions. Um, I think after 75 years, uh, it's inexcusable that this goes on even one, one year more um, to not focus what needs to be done to fix this problem, to get these guys identified, and to get them home to their families. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with that. Um, I think more can be done. And there's, there's opportunities for... for uh, the agencies that are that are in charge of making these identifications, there's a lot of opportunities out there to partner with uh, other organizations and nonprofits and colleges, universities, um, and different different groups that that actually can do this work to help support them. And and those are all, and I agree with you absolutely. And we we could talk for another hour um, or more about uh, all of the potential fixes and uh, the, the many different options that uh, are out there. And uh, the bottom line is, is that uh, what, what they are doing right now is inadequate. Uh, and again, just looking at the track record, the first grave was opened after extensive litigation uh, in 2015. DNA technology to do identifications between relatives has existed since the early 1980s. Um, the new technology, uh, for example, looking at the tragedy of, of September 11th, the condition of the remains um, of, the, of the victims of that terrible uh, event, the technology to do the proper DNA uh, analyses didn't exist. And so companies and the government came together and they actually created the technology. They, they created the algorithms and the testing, um, the testing protocols uh, to identify as many remains as possible. And a lot of them weren't identified, uh, but they were all able to do that in about the course of a decade. Um, they've had 75 years to fix this. And um, the fact that they haven't, the fact that this has been allowed to continue, the fact that so few, we didn't talk about um, for World War II, only 6% of family reference samples are even on file. Why? Because there was no dedicated project to go out and get them. Compare that to the Korean and Vietnam conflicts, 92% of the DNA profiles are on file for identification. That is a fixable problem. Again, why hasn't that been done? There are, there are definitive steps that can 
and could have been taken and none of them are happening. And so when you look at that from the bigger picture overall, it's hard to reach the conclusion to accept what DPAA's responses to this, that they're doing everything they can, that everything is being done that can be done. Uh, again, I don't question their sincerity. I don't question their motives. That That's ir irrelevant. Um, but when you start looking at the facts of the matter and the fact that uh, fewer than 15 have been identified in, in 15 years after 75 years, uh, no, I don't agree that everything is being done. Um, no, it's not. And, and, and the, you know, the defense POWMIA accounting agency has the right algorithms, the right process in place in their own internal lab uh, to, I mean, it's it's basically, I, I think last I heard from the, uh, the Armed Forces DNA, DNA Identification Laboratory is that they have a, uh, I think in, in a lot of these cases, uh, it's like a 80, 90% success rate uh, in making the, the DNA identification. On the well, and, on the mitochondrial side, and right. If they could just take that same technology or the same processes or the same algorithms that they're using, and and partner with other organizations or other certified laboratories that, that can that can help handle a larger, um, in, you know, a larger numbers of of MIAs. Uh, in other words, that uh, you know, not just not to just do all this in in-house in their own little kingdom, but to actually um, partner with other groups or agencies that, that could help get this done. Sure. And in an ideal world, uh, you know, every DNA uh, capable laboratory uh, in the United States would be devoted to this task. And, uh, you know, the, I understand that there's there's a lot of politics that go with that. Uh, you know, the DPAA and, and their associated agencies are um, dependent upon political processes. Um, but I think, you know, and, and again, we could go through all of uh, the different scenarios and, and the different things that, that we believe should happen or could happen, um, you know, and, and, and which one would be right or, or, or incorrect is beyond me. But the way that I look at it, again, is not what they say, it's what they do. And what they've, what they've done is they've had 75 years to fix this, almost 35 years of the technology available to make these identifications. We're the richest country on earth with the greatest scientific advancement. Uh, you know, we're, <laughs> we can do this. This is not beyond our capabilities. I mean, this is not solving some bizarre disease that one person has. Um, you know, we've got the, we've got the tools to fix this. What we need is the will for people to get involved to actually do it. Um, and there needs to be a concerted effort on the congressional side. Uh, and the public needs to be aware. The public needs to be aware, first of all, that this is happening and it's being allowed by our government a government who purports that we treat our veterans with reverence and in a lot of ways we do and a lot of ways we don't uh but that we don't leave people behind um and um the public needs to be 
aware of that and the public needs to get involved. We are dependent at this point in time, according to DPAA rules, we are dependent upon the relatives of the other men who are associated with the graves with Martin to submit their DNA. That at present is the only recourse we have. Um, so why, why, is there, why are they not soliciting this? Why are they not going out to find these families? They did it for the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. It can be done for World War II conflict, for the World War II conflict. And particularly in World War II, you know, you have 80,000 soldiers that are missing. Um, you know, it, that's not reason enough to ignore uh, a situation like this with these soldiers in a known location from a known origin with, against a list of men who they could all possibly be. Uh, this is a very, very fixable problem. Uh, yeah. But we, it ha people have to act, and that's what's not happening is people aren't acting on this. And DPAA is overwhelmed with their current capacity. So until something changes, we're going to be stuck in this this endless process. Yeah, and, and you know, they've taken those 80,000 plus or minus uh, World War II losses, and they've even whittled that number down to actually around 30,000 that are right. active pursuit. Right, Re recoverable. For just those 30,000 at this point to to get those family reference samples. Um, you know, we've, and, and I guarantee out of that 30,000, uh, there's a lot of those that are related in some way or another. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah, so it wouldn't take 30,000 actual samples. Correct. That's correct. You know, I just... I always just try to look at, again, you know, what are they saying and what are they doing? And there's so much more that can be done, but what's being done is not what is being said is being done. Um, and people need to be held accountable to that. The government needs to be held accountable uh, for the fact that they are not putting all of the resources that are necessary to bring all of our missing soldiers home. Right, and, and the public needs to play play their part too, and 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 helping to hold them accountable. But on also on the other hand, um, the kind of what what work I what I do, um, a lot of these families when you contact them, and uh, say hey you have an MIA relative, um, I'm working with another family, or or it could be the family calling another family, and saying hey would you mind providing your your a DNA reference sample um, so that we can get our relative identified and yours. A lot of these, there's quite a few families that uh, um, they don't take it seriously. You know, they, they give it some thought, but they never follow through to actually provide a sample. Um, and that's really disheartening to the families that are really trying to get their, their loved one identified because of this, this policy. Yeah, and that is definitely frustrating because we are directly dependent upon their action. And if they, for whatever the reasons may be, uh, if they choose not not to be uh, a participant, um, then that makes that makes all of our jobs a lot harder. However, uh, if we use a DNA lead process, we eliminate the need for that. Um, then it's only dependent upon a missing 
individual's family donating their DNA, and it's not dependent upon anyone else anymore. Once that database is, is determined and the remains are reassociated, then all one would need to do is submit their DNA, have that processed against the database of the remains, and all of those problems go away. That's, that's correct. And, it, and it, it is a huge undertaking, but yet in, in the same sense, it's not when you compare it to the other options. Um, you know, that, again, I'll go, I'll go back to say that you know, there's, there's other uh, agencies and different things that can help support it if, if, if the DPA will just reach out to them to do it. Right. Process these remains in a timely manner. Uh, using multiple resources. Well, and there's there's a lot of documentation in the in the scientific literature uh, dealing with other events that have happened across the world, other genocides and and mass killings and identification of individuals in mass graves, and uh, most of those have been undertaken by private organizations, and they were all very largely successful in, in one way or another. You're always going to have, there, there will be a boundary of what can't be done. Um, and that, that's a reality of anything that takes place. Uh, but we can't let that be any determination on what we have to do uh, to do the most we can, the best we can, uh, utilizing the technologies that are present and and the resources that are available. Exactly. Well, Martin, I, or uh, Frank, I, I hope <laughs> yeah. I, I got Martin on my mind. He's, he's on my mind quite a bit. Um, Mine too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just Martin, all these other families that I've, that I've had the opportunity to, to assist. And, you know, it, it keeps coming down to some of the things that go through my mind is, you know, you, you die twice, you know, the, the first time when you actually die and, and the last time when, when somebody speaks your name for the last time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's important to, you know, tell the, tell the stories of these, these men that, that, uh, that gave us the freedom that we now enjoy. And, and hopefully, um, hopefully we can get them identified and brought home to their families. You know, your father, like you said, is 89 years old, and and uh, he doesn't have many many more years on this earth to see that day come. And and there's you know he's your father's not unique. Uh, there's there's a quite a number of World War II families that still have siblings that are sure. still living. Absolutely. In your case, just researching the POWs. In your case, case I think I found you know off the top of my head, right around five or six siblings that are still living. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it's it, it it'd be a travesty not to not to do more for for these families and and for the service members who gave their lives for our freedom. And... Absolutely. And I think the the most important thing is we can be stuck in the past and and look at all of the things that went wrong, and and that's important to learn from. But the most important thing right now is to look forward. And to do the things that we can do right now that are the changes that are necessary to finally fix this, this problem and, and, and to bring these guys home. The, all of these guys are heroes. They all have their stories. They, they all had loved ones. They all had people that cared about them. 
they died in service of their country uh, and we should be they should have our unending uh, respect and they should be in the forefront of our thoughts uh, and and we we need to do what we can to bring these guys home yeah I, I agree I, I appreciate you ta- taking the time to to talk talk about Martin's case and and uh, what your family is going through and, and the steps that you're taking and and uh, providing information you know just from this to provide information to other families on the steps that they can take to to uh, kind of get themselves up to speed to where to where you are at you're at in it. And, and, and the most important thing that I can say, the best piece of advice that I can give is no matter what, do not give up until you achieve what you're what you've set out to achieve. And, and you're going to you're going to meet obstacles. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be shocked. Uh, but you've got to just you got to keep with it. And, and when something doesn't work, find another way and make it happen. Um, you know, that's what these guys did uh, during their lives. And uh, and what we do pales in comparison. Um, but I think that that they are good examples of how we can go about doing this. They didn't give up, and neither should we. Over 75,000 service members are still listed as missing in action from World War II. Of those, over 30,000 are currently listed as active pursuit by the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Active pursuit meaning they could possibly be identified with the proper family reference sample DNA being on file with the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. The process of donating DNA reference material is easy, painless, and free of charge. If you are the relative of a missing service member, you can contact the Service Casualty Office of the MIA for information on how to provide a DNA sample. The Service Casualty Office will mail mail to your home a DNA donor kit that contains a donor consent form, instruction form, three cheek swabs, and a shipping envelope. All you have to do is fill out the paperwork, rub the inside of your cheek with the swabs, place the swabs back into the containers, and affix the label. The collected samples are then placed in a pre-addressed and prepaid envelope and then mailed to the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab at Dover. That's it. It's a completely painless process. To get more information about your missing in action relative, you can visit our website, uspowmiafamilylocating.com, and we can help you to determine if your relative is currently listed on the DPAA active pursuit list and the next steps to help get them identified. Just visit our website or email john at uspowmiafamilylocating.com. Thank you for listening to Stories of Sacrifice, World War II, American, POW, MIAs in the Philippines. This has been a production of the U.S. POW, MIA Family Locating. You can find us on the web at uspowmiafamilylocating.com. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and given in the best intention. Overall, the POWMIA accounting community is doing what it can with limited resources. It is our hope additional federal funding will be provided along with additional partnerships established to disinter and process the remains of our own nuns located in the national cemeteries. You can help by contacting your congressional representatives and asking that they implement a DNA lead policy for those unknown POWMIAs. 
Thank you for listening. Angie's List is now Angie, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you can see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Everybody needs just the right amount of fuel to get going in the morning. For some, a nice McDonald's egg and cheese bagel is just enough to do it. Others might prefer a McDonald's bacon egg and cheese bagel. Or perhaps a sausage egg and cheese bagel. And there are those where nothing will do but a hearty McDonald's steak egg and cheese bagel. Four different breakfast bagels to get you going. Tomorrow morning, give your engine a head start at participating McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.